0: Is it, I was free, is it kindergarten or second grade? Yeah, okay. If you're in kindergarten second grade, you want to be dismissed. Now is the awesome opportunity. Why don't we go to the Lord together, first and prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who by his nature is glorious and that you are continuing to spread that glory throughout the nations. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are a God, that we can have this picture of heaven that one day people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be gathered before Your throne singing, Worthy, Worthy, Worthy is the Lamb. Lord, we thank You that You demonstrate Your love to us in dying for us while we were still in our sins. God, in in paying the price that we of ourselves are unable to pay, in remaking us, and making us Your sons and Your daughters. Pray, Father, that indeed you would continue to glorify yourself in us, have your way in us, transform us more into the people you'd have us be. We ask this all in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Well, before we kind of go to our principal text for this morning, I want to back up a little bit and kind of look at the text that we first started this series out on. It was about four weeks ago. Jeremy was preaching and we looked at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And and we know, know that's kind of Jesus parting words to his church in Matthew's Gospel, and he tells them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And Jeremy kind of noted that morning that the, the chief command in there is the command to make disciples, and that all the other verbs modify that initial verb. And and so it's, it's pretty clear, it's pretty simple, it's pretty direct. Jesus' command to the church is, make disciples. That's her mission, that's her job. And it's actually kind of interesting surveying Christendom today, that despite, you know, maybe perhaps a shared agreement on that idea of making disciples being our mission, there is such incredible disagreement on the application of that command. We can agree that we need to make disciples, but we can go off in 18 different directions as we start to talk about the right way to make disciples. What's the best way to make disciples in America in the 21st century? What's the most effective way? What's the most faithful way? What is the way that as followers of Jesus Christ... We should seek and strive to fulfill Christ's command. Studies of the church make it clear that there's a sense in which it appears in America she's failing at, make, at carrying out that command. Uh, you know, Kevin noted that, yeah, very recently, Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, offered, authored a survey, a very large survey, in fact, over kind of religion and Christianity, specifically, sentiments in the country. And uh, it was on a lot of the major news publications, maybe, so it was very interesting to read, short. Interesting findings, though. They found that, as, yes, northern New England surpassed the Pacific Northwest as the least religious portion of the country. Vermont is, I guess you could say, the darkest state, with over 30% of people there claiming they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. 15% of respondents in general said they had no religion which was up from 8.2% in 1990. 30% of married couples said they did not have a religious ceremony. And 27% said they had no intention of having a religious funeral. But, you know, we probably don't need a study to tell, us, tell ourselves that, do we? We see it every day. We see it when we, we drive down our street and we wave to our neighbors. We see it when we see all the people out jogging and, you know, on a Sunday morning when we're coming in here for church. We see it when we go to work, we see it you know, in, our, in our families when we get together for you know, a holiday and we say, oh, can I pray for the meal? And people give us shuddered looks. And, and we can see the fact that we live in a world very much apart from Christ. And, and that brings us to the city of what, what do we do about it? How are we to fulfill this command? And that brings us to our obstacle that needs to be overcome this morning if we are to faithfully give the gospel. We must place our hope in the power of God operating through a healthy church. And I think that is today an obstacle for many people. You know, we are confronted with the same reality disciples need to be made, but how we do it can be very different. We all see the number and influence of Christians waning in the West and assuming that the methods of those who preceded us have failed, we rush down towards depths that we perceive to be heights. And so I just want to be clear: the obstacle to evangelism we're talking about this morning is the fear that a healthy church is not enough to fulfill Christ's command. That a healthy the the obstacle is that a healthy church is not enough to fulfill Christ's command to make disciples. So I invite you, if you want to open up to Acts chapter two, look at our principal text here this morning, and you know. We're only in Acts chapter 2, you know, midway through, and already there's a lot that's happened in the book of Acts. Christ has been resurrected from the dead. He kind of gives what I perceive as almost a second great commission in Acts 1. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, indwelling every follower of Christ. Peter preaches the first gospel sermon post-resurrection, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then here in chapter 2, Verse 42, we get a picture of this fledgling church. It's a very, a very beautiful picture that allows us to see their, their priorities, their lives, their interests, and the divine blessing that springs from that. So chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I'm of the opinion if we want to know what a a healthy church looks like, we've got it right here. And, and I'm really just going to take that as an assumption. I'm not going to spend 15 minutes trying to prove my case in point. I just want to say, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you look at God's priorities for His people, we see almost everyone lived out in these short seven verses. And we see the Gospel having, having taken such a root so as to affect their heart, their schedule, their wallets, and we and begin to see their priorities. And so there's three I want to focus on this morning. Number one, we see that this early community has a devotion to the right teaching of the Word. Number two, they have a devotion to prayerful dependence. And number three, they have a devotion to each other that springs from a new and a shared identity. Devotion to the right teaching of the Word. I, I use that phrase really quite intentionally because I think it's one of the, the neat nuggets we see in here. It's not just that we see a community that wants to be taught. It's not just that we see a community that wants to learn or that wants to grow in their knowledge and their wisdom. They are, we see a community that wants to grow in accurate, trustworthy, God-honoring truth. We've, we see a community that is putting themselves at the feet of the teaching of the apostles. A community that says, we, don't, we, we want the truth. We want to hear about the Old Testament from the guys that traveled with Jesus and heard him talk about the Old Testament. We want to hear the God we want to hear the gospel from the guys who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, who saw the miracles, who saw the things he did, the guys who were there when he was crucified, the guys who saw when he was resurrected. We want to go right to the source. We want right teaching. We don't want to hear we don't want to go to someone who's just going to tell us what we want to hear. We don't want to go to someone who's going to tell us what's in vogue, what's in fashion, or what's culturally acceptable in Jerusalem or even the Greco-Roman world. We want the truth as God reveals it through the apostles as he revealed it through Christ. That is where we're going. And it's kind of and it raises an interesting question as we perceive this idea of what a healthy church looks like in and what ev- how the healthy church relates to evangelism. Because we're going to ask ourselves the question, is the truth enough? Now, not everyone thinks so. We don't have the right product. That's what they tell us. Bishop John Shelby Spong is, is one of, of many whose book, you know, Why Christianity Must Change or Die, doesn't really leave us wondering what he's articulating too much. And, you know, in his book, he is, again, one of others who would say that the reason that people are not walking through those doors in greater abundance is we don't have the right product. We're trying to teach and to propagate doctrines that people just don't believe anymore. So let's just throw them to the side and start, you know, being, uh, you know, a little different, telling different things, and then they'll start coming in droves. Let's stop talking about these doctrines that are divisive and that any intelligent person doesn't believe anymore. Let's stop talking about the virgin birth and and let's stop talking about the deity of Christ and the the Trinity. That's just too confusing. Let's just not even talk about it. And and let's let's just abandon this idea that that, this word of God has no errors in it because uh, intelligent people don't believe that. And let's stop talking about, about heaven and hell. Let's just try to get people to have a simple, basic Christian piety. And if that becomes our message, we will fulfill Christ's command. That's what they tell us. Sadly, too many. And yet we see here in this early church a devotion to the right teaching of the Word from which everything else must follow. Because everything we know about prayer and about life together and about God and His character and His will comes from His Word that He has given us. And if we do not make His Word our foundation, then surely our own ideas or interests will become so. And so like this church, we must look to the Word and say, will we be devoted to it? Not because we want to worship the Bible, but because we want to worship the God who worked through men to author the Bible. Will we be devoted to it? How many things are we really devoted to? It's a strong word when you think about it. What if we really intentionally begin asking ourselves? Maybe we'll say, well, "Well, we're devoted to our to our spouse or our children, but not too many things, because it, it, devotion implies a huge heartfelt need. Devotion implies something that is of incredible, and inestimable value that our lives would be torn asunder were we to lose and be separated from. We're devoted to that which we we, we would be up at night if we were truly afraid we would lose." And yet we see that this church is devoted to the Word. You know, the Bible continues to be a bestseller, so much so that it's not even put in the rankings anymore. They, they don't even want to put it in there because they think it's not fair. And, and here in America, many of us, I think, yes, are, are blessed, you know, with probably a... Great proliferance of Bibles. I mean, if you're like me and you lose everything, you know, you've got your, your, this study Bible, and then you've got the pocket Bible, and then you've got the NIV and the NLT, because you've got to have every translation, you know. And then we've got the Bibles on the internet, and, you know, the home Bible, and the large print Bible, and the small print Bible, and the study Bible. We've got them everywhere. And yet it is so easy for us to pick up the Bible and look at it simply as something other than it is, as a means to an end. As a, as a book of answers to, you know that we can kind of go to when we have some esoteric question that we want answered. Or is the kind of thing that if we can read for ten minutes a day, we can check off our box and walk away and say, I was a good Christian today. Yet if we look at the Bible as that which it proclaims itself to be, I think it is hard for us to be anything but devoted to it because of its author. You know, Jesus says in John 17, Sanctify them by your truth, your word is Truth, Sanctification is that that process by which a follower of Jesus Christ becomes more like Jesus Christ. It's the process by which we become a more faithful and committed disciple. It's the process by which someone more and more puts to death their sin, their interests, ideas, attitudes, actions that are opposed to God, and more becomes holy, righteous, and pure, just like Jesus. And yet here we are told that the Word of God is, is what causes that to happen. We are told that the Word of God brings life in Romans chapter 10. Hope in Hebrews chapter 11. Freedom in Psalm 119 and wisdom in Proverbs 3. The list could go on and on. The Word of God is central to the life of a sanctified follower of Christ but in order to, to increase and grow up to maturity in our salvation, it is the kind of thing that we cannot just have lackadaisical interest in, not just kind of interest intellectually, but that we must be devoted to, like this church. I think we see a good picture of the, the heart of someone who is devoted to the Word of God here in Psalm 119. The psalmist cries out to God in prayer, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees with your lips. With my lips I will recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do our hearts express such a longing and a love for the words that come from the mouth of God that we have? You know, um, is this the book that we pick up because we want to hear God's voice, or is it the means to an end? I find myself wondering... What the, what the devotion of the early church to the Word would look like if they were alive here today in 21st century South Shore Boston. And if they had the same kind of worries and concerns, perhaps, and, that we have, what would their lives look like? What would their response be towards this Word that it says they were devoted to? I think they would look at it in their prayerful petition would be if they were here, God, take my retirement account. Take it. You know what, God? I love my job. Take it. You know what, God? I, I, I really love these, you know, the clothes I have. Take them away. Take the clothes right off my back. God, you know what? I, I love my health. I love being healthy. Take it. You can take everything away, but do not take your word. Take everything I have that I need, that I value, but do not take your word because it is life. And if I have everything else that you've blessed me with, but have not that, I have nothing. Take not your word. I think they would cry out to God. We are so blessed with an abundance of His word that it is so easy for us to forget that which we have. But will we find confidence in the truths of God in order to give the gospel successfully? Second point. We see in this early church a devotion to prayerful dependence. Verse 42 tells us that they're devoted to prayer. I love that. Speaking of them holistically, they are devoted to prayer. You know, a lot of times today, you know, I kind of read things, and it seems like people give the idea that there's two classes of Christians. There are prayer warriors, and then there are the rest of us. And I put myself in the rest of us category. You know, I'll get get attitudes, like, you know, I'll go to a conference and I'll say, hey, if you have any of your prayer warriors that want to pray, send them to this tent. And I'm like, oh, so I could get out of praying? That's what's being communicated? You know, as if there are some of us that are really strong, mighty men when it comes to praying, and there are those of us like me who just stay behind and cook dinner for when the troops come home. You know, as, as, if, as if some of us are better, more gifted, or more called at praying than the rest of us. And yet when I see this church here that is full of devotion to prayer, I, I, I guess I'm compelled to think that they're all prayer warriors, which kind of convicts me that I think we're all supposed to be as well. And so we see this description They're devoted to prayer. And then verse 43 goes on to describe the awe that is present in this early church as miracles are done in their presence. And it's fitting that it's in that order, that we see the description of this supernatural miraculous phenomenon after the description of this church that is regularly humbled on their knees seeking God's intervention in their world and in their lives. The one springs from the other. It doesn't just come there by happenstance. And you know, James reminds us lazy prayers like me, with the following: Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. If is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil, and the Lord will raise him up. Elijah was a man just like us. It's the key just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Should our expectation be anything other than that God would move in mighty ways as it did in Elijah's life or that God would move in mighty ways as he did in the life of this church? Prayer is the means through which God works through His people to accomplish His will. Prayer is the vehicle through which God moves, often, to advance His kingdom. Jesus says in John 6, 44, No one can come to Me unless God draws them. There's this supernatural work of grace by the power of the Spirit that needs to be done for someone to come to a a faith and trust in Christ. And is that where our hope is? Is that where our first response? Or do we trust in other methods that take the place of the priority of prayer? We must adapt, adopt methods that will bring people into church, is what they tell us. Uh, Gordon Connell Professor David Wells calls our generation the generation of the marketers. We have many marketers around today. And you know, this began about 40 years ago now, when, you know, noting that there was more people outside of church than in church, you know, groups went around and they started knocking on doors, very scary for New England, um, knocking on doors and surveying people to say, why don't you come to church? Okay? And, and what do we need to make church look like to get you to come? You know, and, and, they would, and they got very specific. Okay, so if we do this and we do this and we do that, will you come to church? Yes? Okay. Then now church... Is going to become whatever it needs to be to get you there. And that was the idea. You know, and um, the the survey even notes this, I think, interestingly. It says that, quote, congregations large enough to use the term megachurches often call themselves seeker sensitive. And this is the really interesting, interesting part using rock style music and less structured prayer to get people to come who would not go to church otherwise. So, okay, so we'll stop praying in church and we'll have like a really cool band with funky hair and, you know, like a really good electric guitar if that'll make you come. Okay, great. And I'm sure if I went around and I asked every one of the churches that employs these kinds of methods, they would say, yes, we pray. We like praying. Chris. And, and, I've, and some of them actually, some of the, 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 the even like bigwig pastors, yeah, they've even written books on prayer. But then they would say, well, we can't do that in church. You know, this kind of gives us the impression that, yeah, prayer is important, but prayer is not enough. In order to fulfill the command to give the gospel and make disciples, we need prayer, and we need something else. We need prayer plus. Prayer and something else. So apparently we are, we are getting conveyed the message that the prayers of a righteous person, which the scriptures tell us are powerful and effective, and that rose Jesus, excuse me, Prayers that closed the heavens for three and a half years and then unleashed your rain. That is not enough. Not enough. You know, um, I think the real fact of the matter is that we, we just like being in control. And we don't like something that's mysterious and at times unexplainable and doesn't always work the way we choose it to work. And it's a lot easier for us to say, Let me employ methods that I'm in control of if it accomplishes my objective. And and let's be honest, what's our first response? You've got some friend who is hostile to Christianity. I know I've got them. You've got that friend, and, and they are hostile to the things of God Many of us, I think, our first response is to go out to buy, like, three books on apologetics, to read them backwards and forwards, try to memorize all the arguments and all the steps in these logical procedures and how we can kind of box them into some corner through which they have to say, oh, I guess you're right. Our first response is that instead of spending every day for a year spending 15 minutes agonizing in prayer for their salvation, praying that God would break down the walls of their hard hearts, praying that He would open up their eyes, that they could have eyes to see, that He would take their stone heart and give them a heart of flesh, that they would see His love and His grace and His mercy, and that their souls would be laid bare before Him, that they would realize the peril that they are in that He so desperately wants to reach them out of. And yet that's not our first response for many of us. Because prayer is scary, and it doesn't always work the way we intend it to work. You know, I think many of us, we've seen the power of prayer at some point in our lives. We've seen God just answer something miraculously and we we have no explanation for it. And yet then we go through a season where I believe God is trying to teach us and, and we are like kind of the persistent widow. Or the test is, will we be like the persistent widow who day after day, knocks on the door of heaven again and again and again to see if God will move. And it's in those moments of testing that God is, I believe, asking us, how much do you really want this? How important is it? Is this really a priority in your life? Or is this just something that, yeah, you got down and you said, oh yeah, this would be good, God. It'd be, please do this. Prayer is the means through which God accomplishes his will and advances his kingdom. And it's no surprise that prayer has been a, a hallmark key feature to every great revival in the history of the church. You know, one people don't often hear about in uh, the mid-1800s, 1857, we have what's called the businessman's revival or the layperson's revival in New York City. I love New York. And, um, you know, Fulton Street Church hires this guy, Jeremiah Landfear to be a missionary to New York City, not unlike Kevin, you know, becoming a missionary to Providence. And, and Kevin, it's, and, and, uh, Kevin, and Jeremiah, it's interesting that um, what he did and what he didn't do. He didn't really kind of come up with any strategies. He didn't really come up with any gimmicks. He, but he developed a game plan. And so, you know, step one of his game plan was that he needed to pray for the city, Step two of his game plan was that he went around and he started nailing posters to walls inviting people to pray and during their lunch hour. And again, picture you're working a long day, so now he's asking you, give up your lunch hour to come pray. And, and there's going to be no discussion, there's going to be no, more, no sermon, there's going to be no sharing of, you know prayer requests and needs, it's just going to be one flat hour of seeking God's face and begging him to unleash his power, to advance his kingdom and to make disciples and then Jer- step three was Jeremiah went up in the prayer room at Fulton Street Church and he waited and, and that was his plan that's as far as it went first, t- first meeting he had six people showed up, most of them between 15 and 25 minutes late not a good start maybe Six months later, fast forward, tens of thousands of people across every major city, Philadelphia, New York, Washington, D.C., they are gathering together. Many of them leaving work, like getting out of work five minutes early for their lunch break, hustling to, I mean, the council, they literally would run, men in suits, running to the nearest church so they could be there on time, so they could start to pray for God to move. Major media outlets in New York City covered it, several different newspapers. Accounts are that over one million people surrendered their lives to Christ in this movement. There was no crusades, there was no open-air preaching, there was no Billy Graham. You know, there there was men and women praying for God to move. It was enough then. Do we think it is enough today? Step three, devotion to each other, springing from a new and a shared identity. text tells us that they are devoted to the fellowship, and then we see kind of specifically what that looks like and, you know, as, as we go on. They're meeting toge- together every day for instruction. They're, they're sharing meals together in each, o- each other's homes, which probably culminated in communion. And strikingly, verse 44 tells us that they began selling their possessions when another brother or sister is in need, in order to provide for that need. I think this is extraordinary. Simply extraordinary. We know the church is composed of at least 3,000 believers today, because that's how many came to faith at Pentecost. So there's at least that many, maybe more, okay? Well, that's kind of a large enough grouping that we probably have different ages different classes, different occupations, different socioeconomic strata, different likes, dislikes, personalities, introverts, extroverts, the whole gamut. We ha- you know, churches today of 150 people are often segmented and divided over these things today. And yet here we are struck by how it describes them as being together. They are together together. They will not stop meeting together. They are sacrificing for each other. And I think the only explanation we we can have for this is that they lived out the reality of the new identity that they had in Christ. That they realized that they were no longer separated by all those different things, but that that which brought them together was greater than that which divided them. That regardless of all these things in their lives, they were now one in Christ they were made part of one body with many parts. They were sons and daughters of the Lord God Most High. That they were each approaching the same end, the same destiny, together. And that they had a responsibility to love and support each other as members of that body. And we see them living that out. I will, I will, I will forever enjoy um, the distinction of saying, I became a Christian in prison. Um, partially because then people get all upset, like sometimes they take a step away, and they're like, really, you're in prison? Um, that's just fun, because um, I like playing with people. And um, then the second reason I shall have forever enjoyed it is because then I can tell them, no, no, I, I wasn't in prison. I, I I, I went to a prison Bible study, and that's where I became a follower of Jesus Christ, which is goofy, and that's another story. But um, looking back on that experience years later, what still shakes my my world when I think about it is the men I interacted with there at this Bible study. Now, like, like maybe some of you, like I had this stereotype, this image in my mind of what prison is like and what prisoners is like. And honestly, initially as I walked through the doors and kind of you know, gated in each thing, most of the people fit every stereotype I had until I turned a corner and walked into the room where these particular Christian prisoners were waiting for me and you'd have thought I entered a different universe. Surely. I would see these men who looked differently, act differently than me, definitely were, were dressed differently than me, they had a very different background than me. And these men were, were not what I expected. They, these men prayed for each other. They cried when, for each other. They encouraged each other. They supported each other in ways in which I didn't even know how to put it into words because I was so shocked by it because it was the first time I'd ever seen it in my life. People genuinely loving and caring each other. And then they extended that same thing to me and telling me, hey, we really need you here. Hey, you missed a week. Where were you? We need you in this Bible study. you got to keep coming back. Here, like preppy white kid, they're like, hey, come on back. We need you. We need you here. We want you here. And it would have been easy still at that point in my life, perhaps, for me to discredit from a human perspective the truths of the gospel. But there was nothing I could do to discredit the fruit of the gospel that I saw in these transformed lives right in front of my face because I had no category with which to put it in. They were the church Loving and supporting each other. Grieving as one grieved and rejoicing as one rejoiced. And that validated the entire thing for me. And yet, it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus Himself tells us, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Notice that. As I have loved you. I, who have and am in the process of loving you in this humiliating self-depreciating, sacrificial way, in the same way I have loved you, you are to love each other. It's order. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that kind of love extended to another Christian is the validating marker by which we identify ourselves with Christ. And yet, is that where we're placing our confidence, to give the gospel and to make disciples? You know, we see this first Christian communion, so like we see, okay, they're, they're devoted to the right teaching of the Word, and they're, they're devoted to a prayerful dependence, and they're devoted to the fellowship in this new and shared identity. And then we see the fruit of that in verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were saved. You know, and that's striking because think about it. They're living in the midst of the same community that rejected and crucified Christ. They didn't like move 500 miles away and start. This is the same community the high priest whipped up into you know, fury to say, "Crucify him." This is the same community that on at least two occasions tried to stone Jesus for who he was claiming to be. And yet now they're enjoying the favor of this community as they faithfully live out God's call on their lives. Because perhaps this community sees the depth of devotion and commitment and, and there is just nothing negative they can say about it. And it's interesting because it makes us it makes me wonder if the church today by and large is not misdiagnosing the problem Okay, we we are called to make disciples and we are not making them on the level that God calls us to. Is that because the previous way doesn't work anymore? Or that it's not enough anymore? Or is that because we have failed to faithfully live out that which God called us to first? Is the reason that the church is not taking America by storm... Because we don't have the right product, or is it because we don't have enough healthy churches striving to live after this model? Is it because the church has divorced ecclesiology from missiology? You know, know, we have we have ecclesiology, we have the doctrines of the church its purpose, its nature, its governance. And then we have missiology, you know, kind of the, the, the method and the reasons for evangelism and world missions. And a lot of times when you read church literature today or you survey churches, there's this big kind of chasm between the two. And we see here in this text, I think, this very intimate connection. We see this healthy, faithful, gospel church. And we see springing forth from that Evangelism, as God adds to their number daily, those who are being saved. And, and, and it's not, I, I don't want to you know, say this is kind of a formula, but I want to use this and say this is a model. This is an inspiration. Because the fact of the matter is, there's nothing that any of us can do to 100% ensure that the people we care about who do not know the Lord will come to know the Lord. There's no way we can force them into it, trick them into it, twist their arm. We can do everything we can to come up with the latest fad. We can do everything we can, if even we want to, to change this church around. And we'll never know. However, we do have the power as individuals and who make up this body in Hingham and beyond. We have the power to ensure that we become the kind of community that mirrors this community. We have the power to become the kind of community that is devoted to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This community that is devoted to banging on the doors of heaven in prayerful dependence. This community that is so devoted to each other in love that we will sacrifice anything to support our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the question before us is will we strive to be and to support other communities like that? And let's just trust God to do the second piece because He's the one that's got to do it anyway. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You indeed that You are a God who is on the move. We praise You, Father, that You fulfill everything that You purpose to do that you are faithful to every one of your promises. We praise you that you are a God who indeed is, in so many ways, beyond us. God, I praise you that you're a God that we cannot fully figure out, that we can't fully explain, because then that would make less of you than you really are. And God, Lord, I I think I speak for others God, I just want to be wowed by you. I want to be surprised by you. I want to be mystified for you. And God, I pray that you would help us as a congregation to see you in your glory to know You for who You are. I pray that Your Spirit would be at work in us as a congregation, God, to cling to the commands and the priorities that You want Your church to be committed to. God, regardless of our size, Father, regardless of how many people are here, Lord, we, I pray that You would help us to find joy and hope and rest and purpose in being the church You have in mind and trusting in You to make disciples through that effort. We thank You. We plead for Your continued grace and empowerment. In Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.
1: As we close, i uh, just like to remind you that tonight at 5 p.m., um, we have our speaking of devoted to prayer. We have our prayer service and discussion service. We're going to be discussing the question: uh, Why should we plant churches? That'll be on the topic tonight as we sort of wrestle through that from scriptures. So come back tonight, five o'clock. Our prayer team is here as well, and uh, at six thirty is our uh, youth open house. So we'd love for you to come back at six thirty as well and come to youth group. Come a kid again, again and, and join us. Everyone's welcome, even if you don't have a kid in the youth group and And could you stand? You know, let's just close the service by singing the doxology together. Would you mind standing? Let's just sing it through twice. Praise God from whom all blessings fall.